Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2022, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week is Dr. Jordan McSweeney. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Hey, Cam. Hey, Andy. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I guess just to begin with, uh, one of your areas of research is One Nation and its political fortunes. Uh, they've had a bit of a downturn at this last federal election just a few weeks ago. I was wondering, could you tell us what the hell has happened to One Nation? Yeah, um, good news, huh? Uh, so we're, we're a very long way from the electoral high of 2016, right, when Hanson was re-elected with her four co-senators. Sorry, three co-senators. She was the fourth. I mean, the long and short of it is in 2022, they just performed much, much worse in most of the seats, nearly all of the seats they contested in 2019 and 2022. Their primary still grew, their primary vote, but that's really only because they stood about three times more candidates. So the electoral fortunes of One Nation are thankfully continuing to wane, uh, and hopefully it's an ongoing trend. I mean, one of the more interesting things that I guess came out of this campaign was all this talk about the ghost candidates, right? So like a dozen or more One Nation candidates who were completely unknown to the electorate, right? They were some dude living in inner Melbourne running in like a far North Queensland seat. And that was that was if the ghost candidate even existed. There were a couple of cases where no one could track down an identity and address or anything. And I mean, One Nation strategy in 2022 sort of is, I guess, an expansion on their 2019 electoral strategy which was basically just to get as many people as they could possibly find to stand for the party, this time in all 151 lower house seats uh, for the federal election. And basically, the sort of, I guess, three reasons for this, presumably. The first and primary one is to, I guess, try and drive that crucial Senate vote. And even that wasn't, almost wasn't quite enough to get Hanson across the line. I mean, she was in doubt for a little while, but she did manage to retain her seat. It was also about attracting media attention. You know, you've got Lots of candidates, you can have a big announcement about that. You've got a candidate in every seat that can hopefully drive a bit of local press. But also, uh, and sort of thirdly, I guess it was an attempt to try and present the party as a legitimate and serious national electoral contender, which, looking at how they performed, they're not. The the thing with the ghost candidates, I mean, some of these candidates, they didn't even list on their own website. Uh, these were just complete, complete fictions. In a, in a sense, to me, that suggests that uh, they're, they're not a serious political party anymore. And some people have suggested that, uh, you know, AEC funding has a lot to do with this. Oh, definitely. I mean, One Nation has always, or at least in recent years, uh, I guess, approached elections as a bit of a money spinner, right? We have 
publicly funded elections if you get over a certain threshold in your primary vote. And that's a good thing because it allows, you know, smaller, less well-funded parties to contest the elections. Um, and that's a good principle. But yeah, One Nation has always seen it as a way to try and fill the war coffers uh, as well as just like ripping off their candidates. Uh, there was that old recorded audio of James Ashby allegedly suggesting that they deliberately overcharged their candidates for like core flutes and electoral materials so that the party could basically claim that money back from the AEC uh, and turn a profit uh, at, at their candidates' uh, unfortunate expense. I, I think there's, there's a serious question, the extent to which One Nation has ever been a serious party organization, at least at the national level. You know, for my PhD thesis, which was based on, I guess, the 2019 election and how far-right parties, including One Nation, contested and organized around that. You know, I did interviews with like candidates and former office bearers of the party. Most of them, you know, they'd never been to a local branch. A local branch didn't exist. They didn't know anyone else in the party. They got no media training. You know, in some cases, it was like, I sent an email to the party and said, can I stand? And they said, yeah, great. Or they were tapped on the shoulder because the party knew who they were because in 2016, they'd stood for another far-right party and One Nation was just looking to fill seats. I guess apart from its uh, sensible failure to get that many votes and enter the parliament, you've also written about how One Nation, despite these uh, failings, is nonetheless able to influence parliamentary politics, policy and uh, discourse. Can you explain how a party that's relatively unsuccessful can actually have that kind of impact? Yeah. So, I, I mean, and this is, I think, the important thing when we think about um, not just One Nation, but other like Australian far-right parties, like Fraser Anning's Conservative National Party in 2019, for example, is that while these parties suck at contesting elections, they have been fairly successful, I think, in having much of their sort of discourse adopted and perhaps even extended by major parties. So like obvious points might be over the last you know decade or so, the coalition's hardening position on borders, on assimilation, uh, the place of Muslims in Australia. But you know we shouldn't forget things like Labor's Tanya Plibersek proposing an American-style Pledge of Allegiance for school children, or Christina Keneally's proposal shortly before the election to try and recoup costs from refugees in detention, which is positively ghoulish. But I mean, how they do this is a bit of an open question. I mean, Andy, you mentioned um, some research we recently published, which, which was looking at how parties can try and leverage, I guess, like the personal standing and media reputation and presence of the party and their leader to, you know, try and shift the, the Overton window, I guess, about, about how these, these issues are discussed and framed in the public sphere and try and, I guess, wedge parties like the coalition, but also the ALP on the right make them fearful that they're losing voters, so there's sort of a, a potential or perceived electoral threat. And that was, I think, particularly present after 2016, right? People who first preference voted for One Nation uh, in 2016, according to the Australian Election Survey, they were coming like 50-50 from the ALP and the Liberal National Party. So these are people who, in the previous election, uh, had voted for one of the two major parties. By 2019, it was like a 60-40 coalition Labor split that had turned to One Nation. But that kind of electoral threat or the perception of it, we argue, is, is enough to, you know, on, on some instances, shift some of these major parties in that direction because they think that there's a constituency to be to be made there. The, the election also saw basically a, a three-way split in the vote, it seemed, between Labor, the coalition and independents and minor or micro parties. Mm -hmm. At the same time, so I guess on the one hand, Pauline Hanson and her party had to compete with a range of other parties and, and political projects 
which might have voters who wanted to reject it, the mainstream, let's say, had had more options. At the same time, many of those who seem to be successful would arguably be more, would not be classified as belonging to the far right in the same way that Hansen is often categorised. What do you think it says about, I guess, in, insofar as, you know, Hansen and others, they, they uh, help to set the agenda, but also place electoral pressure on especially the coalition in Australia, but to some extent also Labor in terms of catering or, or pandering to those prejudices that uh, Hansen you know, attempts to capitalise upon. Do you think there's been a, do you think the election indicates some kind of rejection of those sorts of politics or the limitations that appealing to prejudice actually has in terms of the voting public? What's your more general kind of sense of the, I guess, political significance of the election? Yeah, I mean, look, the the optimist in me would like to say, yeah, definitely, it shows that these ideas don't have currency with the Australian electorate and uh, that actually we can sort of push back against that kind of racism in our politics. But I think that the unfortunate reality is that parties like One Nation struggle at the polls, not because there is necessarily a shortage of, of appetite for their demand, uh, for their for their ideas, but more because they're just really, really bad organisations. They're just not very good at campaigning, despite their, you know, not insignificant sort of campaign coffers, their, you know, really significant media profile and often quite, uh, maybe maybe supportive is, is too strong a word, but, you know, certainly a, a media environment in Australia that likes the spectacle of Hanson, unfortunately. Uh, so, I mean, my read on this is is not that, you know, we've we've defeated the far right because they got smashed at the election. Australia's, you know, we, we said no to, to, to racist politics and stuff like that. Uh, to me, it's more just like, fortunately, the Australian far right has really struggled to get organized in terms of electioneering. They haven't done what some of their competitor parties that have been more successful in Europe have done. For example, a really big focus on local electioneering to build like local strongholds in boroughs and things like that from which to build off into broader state or regional campaigns and then onto uh, national presidential elections and things like that. They, for whatever reason, haven't done that in Australia. And I think we're extremely lucky that it hasn't gotten to that point. Because I do, I do worry. Uh, the pessimist in me does worry that, you know, with some serious electoral organising, that they might be a more formidable threat in terms of the polls. I guess the other question associated with that is there's been some. I guess the coalition has to. Uh, it's going through some uh, process of soul searching <laughs> to determine what kind of party it's going to be in the future. And there's uh, seems to be strong pressure from many commentators associated with uh, Murdoch publications and so on, uh, that they should go further right and, and arguably, I suppose, enter into territory that we'd uh, more normally associate with uh, Pauline Hanson and her party. What what prospects do you think, or what is the kind of, you know, significance of that? Do you think that's foolish or is it a, is it a viable long-term project? I hope it's not a viable long-term project. You know, thinking thinking to the election and the way in which particularly the electorate, say, of Raringa responded to the controversy around uh, the Liberal candidate there, Deves, and her extremely hateful rhetoric around trans people, the fact that she was given such a resounding flogging at the polls, is that's a really good sign, right? And the attempt to by the Liberal Party to import uh, a very American culture war sort of bugbear didn't land in Australia, and that's a really good thing. But I'm not particularly optimistic that that is 
you know, a long-term guarantee or necessarily reflective of a broader trend. I think it might be more a problem of, of the sales salesman or woman, as it were. So while I don't really see Peter Dutton, for example, as the new leader of the Liberal Party as being the kind of personality that can regain the Liberals, those heartland seats that have really been foundational to the party historically, uh, some of those inner city seats, particularly once they lost to the Teal Independence, at the same time, I'm a little wary of writing off his incredibly corrosive politics as a sure bet for being uh, ineffective or unsuccessful. And I think back to really the, the Tony Abbott-led opposition where Abbott was an incredibly effective and incredibly corrosive on our political discourse opposition leader. And I do really worry that, I guess, Dutton as the attack dog of the party historically, now in this role, now really leaning into that that kind of politics and, and being encouraged to do so by certain sectors of the press, as you noted, Andy, I really worry what that's going to do for this next electoral cycle and sort of what the state of political conversation is going to be like in Australia. And of course, the real material impacts of that, of how that's going to make the lives of a great many people, whether they're trans people, whether they're migrants, whatever, how they're going to feel in Australia. Because I think there's a great deal of harm that can and will be done in that respect. Jordan, we've recently seen in the wake of a, a number of massacres in the United States, there's been a sort of revival of some of the footage that came out of uh, various One Nation figures shortly prior to the 2019 federal election meeting with the NRA in the States, trying to secure funding from them in exchange for a promise to weaken gun laws if they uh, gained the balance of power. Do dark money campaigns like this have a lot of influence on the far right in Australia? Cam, it's a really good question. Honestly, I, I don't really have an answer. I I don't know because we just don't really know about where money comes from for you know far right parties like FON or political parties in Australia. Really, in general, I mean, Australia has some of the most secretive political party organisational behaviours. They they really operate under a cloud of secrecy, and that's that's the Liberal Party, that's the Labor Party, that's the Greens, et cetera, et cetera. They don't, you know, it's not like their competitors say, oh, they're, they're um, sort of comparable parties in say the UK, like the Tories and Labor there that, you know, put out regular reports on membership numbers and demographics and fun, like really quite clear financial disclosures comparative to Australia. It's super murky. Yeah. Don't have a clear answer there, unfortunately. You're listening to Yenar Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Jordan McSweeney about the far right in Australia. And it is Radiothon Month on 3CR. If you would like to donate to the Yeah Nah Pass Around fundraiser, you can do so at givenow.com.au slash CR slash Yeah Nah Pass Around. We really appreciate all the support. Now back to Jordan. In your research into uh, the political parties that make up the Australian far right, what, what other sort of things did you find? And what were the other parties that you looked at besides One Nation and Fraser Anning? Yeah, so for, for my thesis, I looked at pretty much all the far right parties that were contesting 2019. So from memory, that's like, Kim Vugas, love it or leave it, Rise Up Australia Party. That was Daniel Nilay's uh, project. Uh, you had the Great Australian Party, uh, former, Rod, uh, former One Nation Senator Rod Cullerton's little soft citizen project. You had Fawn, you had Gap, and off the top of my head, the others escaped me. Basically looking, looking quite broadly at this and really interested in how they were organising, not just in relation to the election, like I was interested in the general sort of internal governance of their parties, right through from their sort of like constitutions, which is one of the few pieces of political party information 
that is legally required to be publicly available in Australia. You need a, a rules or constitutions uploaded with the Australian Electoral Commission uh, in order to register as a party. Uh, so looking at those, speaking to candidates, speaking to current and former office bearers of the parties, although not candidates from every party were available and happy to speak to me. It was, it was pretty well limited to Fraser and Conservative National Party, Rise Up Australia Party and One Nation candidates. And I was also really interested in how they use uh, social media as like an organisational technology. So how they use Facebook and Twitter for, as I guess, like default branch structures because they don't actually have physical spaces like, you know, mass parties like the ALP or the Liberal National Party at least formally had, how they sort of articulated collective identity as part of their campaigning what sort of stuff they were doing around the election. Were they trying to recruit members and solicit donations and, you know, line people up to hand out at polling booths? And were they using the internet to sort of facilitate that? And I guess what was interesting out of a lot of this work was, and I guess it reflects what I was sort of saying earlier, I mean, the most interesting thing about Australian far-right parties and how they've behaved as parties is their disorganisation, the fact that they really don't have a comprehensive organizational strategy or plan. They are not really institutionalized as organizations and largely exist as like a a cadre of supporters around their party leaders. Um, And particularly speaking to people from like the Rise Up Australia party, you know, the way that that party worked was... They didn't have any sort of formal federal, state, local branch structure. That's standardly how parties are sort of organized in Australia. And instead, they basically have these sort of dual church meetings uh, slash party meetings. They would sort of come together. Uh, Daniel Nalai, the party founder and leader, uh, would talk about, well, what's the next campaign coming up? Uh, it's a Victorian you know, state election campaign. Uh, it's a federal campaign in 2019. And the party would sort of like very loosely organize around that and have this sort of sporadic rush of activity and then the election was over they didn't win any seats polled very poorly and the party would almost like dissolve or disintegrate back into these more amorphous networks of like christian fundamentalists uh, islamophobes etc etc until the next election comes along and they sort of re-coalesce around danny nalaya and run their little campaign again and then it all sort of dissolves again so there's this particularly with parties aside from one nation one nation is a bit different in this respect there was this much greater degree of like fluidity, I guess, around how they organized and in a way sort of more resembled like broader social movements that, you know, there were no clear leadership, uh, there were no clear membership structures, sorry, there was no clear rules or responsibilities for members, candidates were sort of just amorphously thrown up out of the movement. Uh, It was just a lot, it was quite chaotic and quite disorganized, really. Is it fair to say that uh, all of Fraser Annie's candidates fell into that sort of amorphous uh Genre? You know, I seem to recall they had a, you know, a robot sex guy who must have surely was working away on all of his robot sex research uh, when they were yeah. running politics. Adrian Chiok, yeah, he's um, well now he's very busy with uh, Fraser Anning in the US. Uh, Fraser Anning, who's in the US, uh, running the uh, Center for National Populist Economics or whatever they started up with Steve Bannon. Um, yeah, which- what's, what's happening with that? And what's uh, I mean, I feel like Steve Bannon is famous for backing maybe the uh, you know the the outside chance, but Fraser Anning seems like a very outside chance. Yeah, I, I don't think anything's happening that with that beyond uh, a very poorly designed web page. That was sort of its status last time I checked in, and I'd be a bit surprised if it really ever got further than that. I mean, Anning, of course, was the nucleus for that party. He left Australia for the US after the election and is 
still facing potential bankruptcy proceedings of like 150k from Bendigo Bank here. So I don't think he's going to return anytime soon. So I guess he's just hanging out. The um the good professor has written a book about Fraser Anning, hasn't he? He has. Uh, I haven't yet picked up a copy, but it is uh, sort of unfortunately on the Christmas reading list. <laughs> Look forward to the review. I, I suppose in addition to, I suppose, the, the, the somewhat shambolic attempts at constructing a far-right party of any real effectiveness or seriousness, uh, we've also witnessed in the past few years attempts by, um, I guess, uh, cliques or small collectives of far-right actors to enter the mainstream in a rather surreptitious fashion. And I'm thinking about the, the young nationals in New South Wales. Have you any thoughts on uh, that kind of strategy, the, the entry of strategy, if, if it's the case that there's this kind of inability to construct a, a, a party, an autonomous party, does it actually make more sense for far-right actors to enter into the mainstream? Yeah, I mean, the, the case with the Young Nationals and that infiltration in New South Wales in, what, 2017, I think it was, was a really alarming uh, development, I guess, in the uh, sort of repertoire of far-right action in Australia. Very fortunately, that was found out and sort of cut out from the party. Uh, they were all expelled and um, the Nationals, uh, you know, have allegedly introduced new measures to uh, ensure that won't happen again. But at the same time, when like 10 dudes can sign up, join the party and stack the state youth branch all in one weekend, it's sort of a bit worrying. But, you know, of course... I think that's the most pro high profile and most developed example uh, of something like that happening, particularly within like a, a major, you know, legitimate mainstream party with a parliamentary presence and an electoral force. And, you know, at the time, uh, the junior party uh, of government, we've seen similar things with, you know, allegations of neo-Nazis working in Fraser Adding's office when he was a senator. You know, these are neo-Nazis potentially on the, on the books of the Commonwealth being paid by the taxpayer helping run Anning's campaigns. And I think if we think about the kind of, you know, what Anning was doing around and in the lead up to 2019, you know, he was forthright that he wasn't going to win his seat back. You know, he said that in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald prior to the election. He said, you know, I, I recognise I'm probably not going to be re-elected. So I guess we have to think, well, what's the point of getting involved with Anning if you're a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi in Australia? And it's a potentially once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to use parliamentary resources and the legitimacy and media profile afforded of a senator to try and basically poison uh, the public sphere as much as you can by putting out as much hateful sort of tweets about banning uh, black and Muslim immigration, as Anning called for on Twitter, uh, of blaming uh, the victims and survivors of the Christchurch massacre, essentially blaming that attack on them. It's their fault for being Muslims in Western society, which is essentially the characterization of Anning's comments in the wake of that attack. Just doing really, like, frankly, grotesque, uh, hateful stuff and just churning it out, just trying to get as much out there, hoping something sticks. It probably won't stick, but everyone else has had to have a conversation about it in the meantime. And I think when it came to his tweet, particularly around instituting a very Steve Bannon, Trump-inspired uh, Muslim ban, but also Anning was very keen to extend that to what he called Black African immigration. The, the fact that we then had to have a, 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 well, we didn't have to have, but we did unfortunately have a sort of political media discourse around well, this is obviously inappropriate, but it was sort of now on the table and we had to negotiate its, uh, uh, sort of navigate its, its merits or lack thereof. And, and, you know, 
very sort of liberal marketplace of ideas type thing where it was like, well, you know, obviously this has no merits, but here we have just spent 10 minutes discussing it in primetime television. And all of a sudden it's gone from something that no one in our political class hopefully would think, or certainly not say out loud, uh, to something that's being discussed on six o'clock news. And I think that has an incredibly corrosive effect. And I think that was the utility of someone like Anning for, you know, the fascist cadres in Australia. It was a real golden opportunity for them. And I think in terms of poisoning our discourse, he probably paid dividends, certainly in the short term. In the wake of uh, Anning's comments on Christchurch, there, there was this sort of, uh, not an accounting for or reckoning in the Australian media, but, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, Pauline Hanson being questioned on Sunrise for her role in, you know, bringing Fraser Anning into politics. And it, it did remind me of uh, her performance on the show Frontline some decades previous where Mike Moore asks her, you know, where, where, where do you get these ideas from? Uh, as the episode showed them, the show Frontline depicting you know, a series of racist uh, stories. And then uh, to see, you know, Pauline Hanson being asked on Sunrise, a show that she'd appeared on for you know, some years, where someone like Fraser Anning gets his ideas from, I thought was an interesting parallel. Do you think that uh, there's been enough of an accounting for in the Australian media for the, their role that they may have played in radicalising the Christchurch shooter? Absolutely not. Um, and I think this this extends to like expand the scope of the question a bit more. Like Australia as a nation or community or whatever is deeply unwilling to have a reckoning with racism and white supremacy and that is inherent in the colonial project that is Australia, right? And so we're not going to do that anytime soon. We're not going to, as a nation, take any degree of responsibility for the fact that the Christchurch shooter is is Australian. He was radicalised in Australia. He was known to uh, many of the activists active sort of leadership of the contemporary far-right movement in Australia. That's not going to happen, certainly, at any sort of political level uh, that I can see, certainly not in the short term. And certainly, I don't think if if the political class isn't going to sort of lead that conversation, I, I certainly cannot see media wading into that, uh, or at least certain sections of the media wading into that and sort of um, acknowledging the role that they may have played. Yes, I, I unfortunately can't see that that happening. And I, I mean, this sort of speaks to the work I'm doing now at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. Like, we're really interested in how uh, the public sphere, so that's, you know, that's media actors, that's, you know, politicians, it's how the broader sort of political discourse or public discourse, we're really interested in how that responds to violent extremism in, in several democracies, including, say, like the Christchurch Massacre. And sort of thinking through, well, what's, a, I guess, a healthy democratic response and what's a sort of unhealthy or undemocratic response. And certainly, yeah, Australia's media has not approached that in anything near, you know, a reckoning with their responsibility or potential role. And certainly at the level of institutions, certainly there are individual journalists who are phenomenal in this regard. So I just want to make that clear. But, you know, as, as institutions and, and, and publications or, or news channels or whatever, you know, we don't even have any sort of basic semblance of best practice guidelines on how to report on violent extremism in, in ways that minimise harm, uh, that don't, you know, further disseminate extremist propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. So there isn't even a willingness yet to deal with, you know, the current problem. I, I certainly can't see them sort of revisiting perhaps historical roles. Uh, one proposal that's been floated in recent weeks and months across various jurisdictions for combating the extreme right is a, a proposed ban on the swastika or the hack and cruise 
Uh, I was wondering what your take on that is and what the effectiveness of it may or may not be. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the effectiveness point, and I think it won't be very effective, um, is, is this sort of short answer. My, my general thoughts on it is, obviously, I'm not going to lose any sleep if swastikas are banned, but I just sort of think it's the wrong approach or the, the wrong place to direct energies for dealing with the very real threat of like neo-Nazis in Australia. In, in very simple terms, there's no point banning the swastika if, you know, the Volksrun and the Tokenkopf and, you know, the plurality of other symbols that the far right uses, perhaps even a little more frequently uh, in their propaganda. And there's not a whole lot of point banning a symbol like the swastika if you can still download and read a copy of Siege or the Turner Diaries or something that has perhaps a much more um, material impact on the actual practice of these groups. O- on the other hand, like, if it means even for a small time that neo-Nazis can't intimidate minorities by, you know, spray painting a swastika on a synagogue or something, I mean, that's good, but I just I, I just don't see it actually having that effect. The effect I, I do see it having is providing a very neat little rallying cry for a movement that is arguably maybe a little demoralized after their Fuhrer Tom Sewell has had a you know, bit of trouble with the courts lately, although he's probably come out better than many of us would hope uh, thus far anyway with these bail conditions. But it provides groups like the National Socialist Movement or the European Australian Movement um, a really nice rallying cry to push back against particularly the proposed Victorian ban. They're pushing back, so it seems, on religious grounds. I'm no legal expert, but I reckon they might be able to get it overturned. And if they do, that's going to be such a, you know, great little victory for them it's going to really help re-energize the movement and show all of their sort of cadres that they're really out there kicking ass and taking it to the triple parentheses courts or whatever so i just i don't see it as being particularly effective don't see it as potentially being long lasting i think it's very easy to just get around these kinds of bands as well by using one of the dozens if not hundreds of other symbols that they like to use yeah i'm not very optimistic about this one Speaking of Tom Sewell and also speaking of the man that the Christchurch killer described as his emperor, both have been featured in at least a series of uh, photographs or tweets that were produced by Todd Sampson, who's an advertising guy who's undertaking a documentary which I guess is intended to help the Australian public understand these figures and where they're coming from and much else, and yet there was quite a backlash to this What do you think this incident says about, I guess, the approach of the media to reporting on or presenting or platforming these sorts of figures? And do you think that there are lessons to be learned from this, uh, you know, this moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I mean, I think the main thing uh, that this really unfortunately very nicely illustrates is that a broad cross-section of the Australian media, because, of course, there are some really excellent journalists out there, you know, people like Ariel Vogel, people like uh, Michael McGowan, doing really, really good work uh, in the sort of far-right space. But it really illustrates that a very large section of our sort of journalists and editors and producers are not well prepared to cover a topic such as neo-Nazi activism in Australia or they are prepared and they do know the potential dangers of the kind of softball reporting and platforming, uh, uncritical platforming, particularly in the case of the Todd Sampson documentary, so it looks. You know, they do, they may know the dangers, but they just don't care because 
of the financial imperative or the commercial imperative of contemporary media, right? At the end of the day, it's about the bottom line. If this gets clicks, if this gets eyeballs to tune in, then that's a win. And it doesn't really matter how much harm it caused members of the community, how much it did to legitimize neo-Nazism, how much it did to legitimize particular neo-Nazis within their own movements as leadership figures and spokespersons and the like. I think the Todd Sampson documentary, which, you know, hopefully we'll never see the light of day, but I'm not so optimistic. I think there are a great many lessons to be learned there. The first of which is if you don't know anything about uh, neo-Nazism, particularly in Australia, and you actually have a background in advertising, no disrespect to people who work in advertising, but perhaps you're not best placed to make a documentary about this thing. I think reading some of the tweets of some of the anti-fascist activists and researchers who were approached uh, by uh, the producers of this and were, by the sounds of it, just lied to completely in terms of what the nature of the documentary was going to be and who was going to be participating. So I think there's a strong lesson to be learned there for media practitioners that you shouldn't lie to your talent or prospective talent about the nature of the production you're making. But of course, yeah, I think the more important lessons are that we need some kind of best practice guideline for how to report on things like neo-Nazism, far-right extremism, or whatever you want to call it in Australia. I mean, the Media and Entertainment and Arts Alliance, the the sort of journalist union, they, to their credit, put out a couple of years ago uh, after Christchurch, they put out a quite small sort of like dot point guidelines for how to do this stuff. But of course, that's only binding on union members. And as we know, union density in Australia is um, unfortunately tragically low. So another approach might be, you know, we have best practice guidelines for how to report on suicide that are, you know, I think pretty widely respected and acknowledged as important across uh, the Australian media sector. And I think it would be really excellent if the Australian Press Council could put together something similar because, you know, we know from research on this kind of best practice uh, on reporting on extremists, and I'm thinking particularly about uh, Whitney Phillips's uh, Oxygen of Amplification uh, report that came out with Data Society some years ago. The, the parallels for basically how to responsibly report on, you know, far-right extremism are, are pretty pretty damn similar to best practice for reporting on suicide and harm minimization approaches to doing that. So I think it would be really excellent to see that sort of similar harm minimization approach adopted for reporting on things like violent extremism, neo-Nazism and so forth in Australia. And if we did that, hopefully we would be able to avoid some of the platforming of, um, yes, the Christchurch shooters, Emperor Blair Cottrell on uh, Sky News and ABC's hack, uh, Triple J's hack, hopefully avoid people like Todd Sampson making these documentaries and, and posing for chummy photos with his subjects. Hopefully it would stop things like news agencies embedding uh, neo-Nazi propaganda videos into their online articles with autoplay features that like the moment you open up this clickbaity article about neo-Nazism, you're just getting some uncut uh, neo-Nazi propaganda blared at you. Hopefully it would cut down on the hoaxing. Uh, I think about the April Fool's uh, National Socialist Network hoax uh, about trying to go out and uh, like uh, mate, as they put it, with Jewish women or something along those lines. It was sort of taken hook, line and sinker by sections of the Australian media and commentariat as like a very real political project. I think it would be really good if we could have some best practice guidelines to avoid stuff like this continuing to happen in Australia. Jordan, one of your other areas of research is into the concept of Western civilization. Now, what could possibly be wrong with Western civilization? Well, to, to yes, to, thanks, Cam. To, to, I guess, quote 
once treasurer Josh Frydenberg, um, what could possibly be racist about Western civilization? Well, we've done a bit of research, as you mentioned, um, both into how uh, Western civilization has been used as, as a concept within like the parliamentary discourses of Australia since Federation, as well as uh, in the context of, of a particular research centre, the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization. And basically the problem is that Western civilization, you know, in what is perhaps a surprise to not too many of your listeners, is basically just a euphemistic expression of, of whiteness and often white supremacy. Particularly in Australia, Western civilization has sort of been used as this historically very explicit racial marker. You know, we look at the sort of uh, early Federation uh, discourse around Western civilization, and it very explicitly links it to a virile, healthy nation made of white men and a bastion of whiteness uh, in, in you know, the ends of the world, on, on the edge of the barbarian hordes type stuff. And, you know, over time, uh, particularly in the sort of post-war, uh, post-World War II period, that really explicit racial content was emptied out and replaced with a more euphemistic discourse around values and democracy and the individual uh, and how the West is just really, really good at having a tolerant and open society. But of course, uh, there, there, there can't be a self without an other. There can't be a sort of West without the East, to quote Edward Said. And so implicitly, if not explicitly, this Western self is, in Australia, always imagined primarily in terms of, of whiteness, of Anglo-Saxon sort of settler colonial uh, ideas, and the other is generally the non-white. In the more contemporary iterations, it's, you know, uh, East Asian and Muslim people. Historically, it was pretty much just East Asian people, particularly the Japanese and the Chinese. But yeah, it's, it basically becomes this very nice way of talking about race that's not racist, so its proponents say. There's been a, a shift in, in language without necessarily being a shift in or a fundamental alteration in the concepts which underpin them or the structures that sustain them. Um, I'm thinking in terms of Western civilization. you know, that could be read as, as being a, some kind of progress perhaps. At the same time, insofar as Western civilization is associated with uh, liberalism, with democracy, with tolerance, those are the sorts of things that insofar as they're attached to Western civilization, arguably have some kind of popular appeal and they're intended to. They're intended to uh, present certain kinds of ideas and political projects in a way that doesn't evoke, you know, a concern or opposition. How do you think it's best for, and this may be a more general question for the general public, to look at these sorts of questions and to be able to, I guess, critically analyse them, to understand them and to understand the ways in which these sorts of ideas that on the surface perhaps have some kind of appeal or a relatively innocuous uh, conceal something that is more malicious or damaging. Is there any, I, this may also relate to questions about how the media treats uh, certain subjects, is there any way in which, you know, the general public can arm itself to better uh, combat these forms of discourse? Hmm. I think, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the I think the important thing to look out for, to, I guess, keep it brief is to think about when you know the sort of wonders of western civilization are being extolled by right-wing politicians to think about what that's being presented as a as a opposite to or, or what is what is that being presented in in relation to right and typically particularly in the most sort of recent iteration of this civilization as discourse it's been deeply intertwined with 
the so-called war on terror uh, and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and this idea of needing to bring democracy to the Middle East and to liberate their women uh, and to teach them all the excellent values of, of Western science and rationalism, uh, to give them mobile phones and capitalism uh, and so on and so forth. And so in articulating Western civilization or this discourse of Western civilization, the sort of implication is, of course, that, uh, well, these these peoples who exist outside of it are inherently the opposite of that, right? If, if, we're, if we're civilized and developed and rational and, you know, tolerant and open and liberal, well, they by necessity can't be, otherwise they'd be part of the West too. So they must be barbarous and they must be undemocratic and they must be, you know, living in utter misery. Uh, and so it's our duty to go in there as an extension of the sort of white saviour project to, you know, teach them about democracy and, and to rebuild their society in our, in our mirror image so that they'll be happy just like us. I mean, you know, in terms of, I guess, the everyday person arming themselves to be aware of that, I, I think, yeah, just think about who's being excluded from that, that, that image of Western civilization. Where are, the, where are those borders or boundaries being drawn? And so who is it, I guess, being weaponized against or, or what sort of political projects is it being used to, to legitimize? And, you know, sometimes it is really, uh, I guess, innocuous and, and quite funny. I mean, in our research on the Ramsey Center, um, one of their keynote speeches talked about how the West invented oral hygiene. And so this is why the West rules. It's because we have really clean, good teeth. And, you know, it's just so inane and, and kind of silly almost that you sort of wonder how it can be part of a, a serious reactionary political project. But then, of course, that kind of, of soft discourse, let's say, on, on the West is good. Uh, and some of it's even a bit, you know, self-reflective. Some of it's like, oh, the West did some bad things in the past, like colonialism wasn't very nice, but, you know, we said sorry and we're making amends and so the, the West is still best, even though we had a, a murky past. But, of course, that exists alongside of and enables and, and you know, sort of provides the political cover for the much more explicit, like, West is best, clash of civilizations sort of discourse where the West is free, tolerant, and, and has a sort of moral imperative to, to rule the world in our image uh, because everyone else is a savage. Uh, not really the point, but I'm not sure the stereotype about the Anglosphere is that they have amazing teeth. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, yeah, some of the things that appear in this discourse are, you know, like as a, as a deeply ideological, political sort of project of, of imagining this idea of Western civilization, because of course, crucially, there's no such thing as Western civilization. What is it? It, it doesn't make any sense geographically, historically, uh, in terms of its canon. In, it, it's like, it's a completely arbitrary uh, constructed identity, as, you know, most imagined communities are, to put it in sort of Benedict Anderson's terminology. But, you know, in, that, in this respect, it's, it's the, the sort of question I always like to pose to people who are like, oh, but, you know, you know, we did come up with, the West did come up with science and look how, look, we have all of our liberal democracies and, okay, maybe they're not perfect, but surely it's better than, I don't know, China or Iraq or something. And, you know, we, we have this great tradition that grew all the way from, you know, Athens or whatever. And, I mean, aside from the fact that Athens was a slave state, it's like Greece wasn't part of the West until the 60s and Cold War imperatives made it so, you know, like it, it's, it really means nothing, which is why it's such effective sort of tool in this post-racial quote-unquote discourse of the right to talk about race without talking about race. 
but Jordan, what if I had lots and lots and lots of money and uh, a higher education system which is being uh, defunded and desperate for money? Don't you think Western civilization would, would have a certain sheen? I don't know about I don't know if Western civilization has a sheen, but the money does uh, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so I mean, and this is the other interesting thing that when we think about the proponents of the Ramsey Center, I mean, they acknowledge regularly that most of what they wanted to teach has already been taught in arts and humanities or social sciences and humanities curriculums. You know, the, the core texts that they want their students to read are already being taught more or less, but they're being taught alongside other texts that might be critical of the West and critical of colonialism. And they're being taught in specific disciplinary frameworks of, you know, English literature or political science and international relations, whereas the Ramsey Centre wants to be post or anti-disciplinary and basically teach about the West for the West uh, or not just not just in favour. Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of um, Tony Abbott's articulation that really uh, blew up. Uh, anyway. As a uh, suppository of wisdom? Uh, <laughs> No, it was something along the lines of like, not just about the West, but in favour of it uh, in talking nice. about the centre. He'd written an article for The Spectator. Um, he must have been a very proud boy to have written that one. I imagine he was a very proud boy and perhaps remains so. Uh, I'm sure he's very proud of his appearance at demographics conferences in Orban's Hungary. We have another election coming up in Victoria at the end of the year mm. and presumably the One Nation Party will be uh, contesting it. But there's been some talk about the decline in the Labor vote in the outer electorates of Melbourne, especially those electorates in which lockdown had particularly damaging effects upon people's uh, livelihood and financial status, their social conditions. And these are interpreted as being the kinds of environments in which uh, populist and far-right political figures and parties can actually thrive and in non-traditional, I guess, you know, non-Tory seats. And that's going to pose particular questions for how the coalition engages with these issues, what kind of message it's going to try and sell. I mean, obviously, African gangs are no longer current, apparently. That's been abandoned. But I guess there are real questions being posed about, you know, how to respond to these I guess, changes in rhetoric, appeal, and I guess uh, capitalising on voter discontent. At the same time, there's a seeming absence of the left insofar as it's a, an electoral project uh, in many of these places. So putting on your, you know, based on your own studies of how One Nation's appeal and, and how it's worked and notwithstanding the chaos that's associated with the far right, what do you think is going to play out or what could play out in these electorates and what might be, a, a, I guess, a, a more productive, healthier, a progressive response to these sorts of issues in these, uh, among these particular populations? You know, I, I talk about One Nation as being quite disorganised at the federal level, um, but I, I, th I think especially in a state like Victoria where, you know, they only really got a state branch formally registered quite recently, that's perhaps even more so uh, the case there. So I would tentatively, optimistically put my money on parties like One Nation not doing very well at all and, you know, not having anyone elected. Uh, and I hope that this audio does not come back to bite me in a few months. In terms of what, what I think will, will happen, though, as well, is particularly now with the sort of federal direction of the Liberal Party, perhaps we'll see uh, an attempt by the coalition to 
you know, shift further rightward to maybe try and pick up or play into some of that discontent. And certainly the Victorian Labour Party is, uh, I guess, well-placed, for lack of a better term, to do that. Their leadership lent in pretty hard with the sort of anti-mandate, anti-Dan type crowd. Uh, So perhaps they'll continue to do so uh, and feel emboldened to do so with Dutton now at the helm federally. In terms of a more productive and, you know, left approach to how to deal with this sort of stuff. I don't have an easy solution and there isn't an easy solution, I guess. Uh, My thinking, maybe learning from some of the lessons, it sounds like, that the Queensland Greens went through uh, in inner city Brisbane is having, you know, local candidates actually from your electorates and involved in the community just doing like good old-fashioned campaigning, knocking on doors, walking the streets, talking to people and campaigning on local issues that matter to people in their everyday lives, whether that's transport, housing, affordability, wage growth, and things like that, healthcare, education, particularly at a state level. I, you know, if if I was living in Victoria and was campaigning for a, a left-wing political party or, or some kind of left-wing political project outside of the party space, which is perhaps even more productive, that's, you know, that's where my energies would be directed, trying to build some kind of community organizing around issues that, really matter to people in their day-to-day lives. Well, that's all we have time for on the radio version of the show, but we'll have a few more questions with Jordan on the podcast, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash dnrpassaran. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, If people want to find some more of your work, you're on Twitter at Jordan underscore McSweeney. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. It was so great to talk to you both. Well, Andy, that's our show. We will be back next week with our Radiothon special. People can donate to our Radiothon fundraiser right now, though, at givenow.com.au slash CR slash Passeran. We'll see you next week.
Mantengamos la fuerza en la comunidad. Keep community strong. El Cantallero. Time to donate. Reciar Radio Dome 2022. El Cantallero. Time to donate. Reciar Radio Dome 2022.